Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. All right, a really hard question for you as we get started here tonight. How does the Bible begin? How does the Bible begin? What are the opening words to it? In the beginning. What kind of books start like that? <laughs> yeah, Genesis does. What kind of books start with something like in the beginning? It'd be like a, a story. It'd be like a narrative, like our, our way of saying a long time ago or way back when or uh, like any time you'd say uh, once upon a time. In the beginning. There are a lot of stories in Genesis, right? I mean, if you've been in church for any length of time, especially if you grew up in a children's ministry, I guarantee you have heard some of those stories of Genesis. And we have a tendency to pick and choose the stories that appeal to us, don't us? And then we, we try to just tack a moral onto the end of them, almost like it's an Aesop's fable. Uh, you guys ever read Aesop's fables or you have them to read to a kid? You know, and I, had, I had a book of them when I was a kid, and I I seem to remember it was, it was like a hardcover, it was a big one, it was like that big, and each story took up one page, there was a title on the top, and then there was a moral right below that title that, like, you're reading this story, and if you don't walk away with this idea, you've missed the whole point. And I think sometimes we treat the Bible that way, too. Like, each one of these stories has to have that little point that we walk away from. And we do it all the time. I mean, just, just look at Genesis and think about some of these stories with me here. Adam and Eve. We say, don't disobey God. Cain and Abel, well, don't be angry or, or don't get revenge. Noah, well, you're going to die if you don't follow God because everyone in that story did. Abraham and Isaac, have faith in God even if it seems ridiculous because you're going to get a ram in your thicket, amen? Or the classic Joseph, be pure. You guys know what I'm talking about with that, right? We just, that's how we treat the Bible a lot of times. And I'm not saying we can't draw morals from Scripture. Obviously, it's our guidebook for that. But the Bible is not simply a book of principles. It's so much more. And to, say, and to treat it like an Aesop's fables, especially in the Old Testament, we do that a lot, is to limit the Scriptures and the impact that it can have on our lives. It's just not that clean-cut. It's, it's, it's not that simple. You know, sometimes we say that the Bible is simple. I hate to break it to you, the Bible is not simple. Salvation is simple. The gospel is simple. But the Bible is not. The Bible is a very complex book. The Bible has a lot that can't be distilled down into a children's picture book. It's about so much more than salvation. And think about this, if salvation were the end goal... Wouldn't God just zap us up to heaven the moment we got saved? Now, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of salvation. I like to say that salvation 
is the first step on the staircase of your Christian life. It's the most important step, because without it, you're not on the staircase at all. But it's still only the first step in an entire staircase. You still have a whole Christian life to live after that. So what I'd like to do with the next few times I'm able to speak on a Wednesday night is to go back to the very beginning of our story. And I'd like to relearn the beginning of the Bible the way that it was meant, or at least what I believe it was meant to be understood as. Uh, And I will give the disclaimer right up front that I do not claim originality for any good ideas that I have. If something makes sense to you or, or clicks in a certain way, that is because of the many, many wonderful preachers and scholars who have gone before me and put in effort that I could study in their footsteps. And you say, why do you say that? Because a lot of preachers in the last year have gotten in trouble for plagiarizing, and I don't want you to think that I'm stealing other people's ideas. You want to talk about where I get it from? We can talk after the service. If it's a good idea, it didn't come from me. All right, we'll go with that. But Genesis is not just a random collection of stories. It's one big story that's divided into two main logical parts. And that's chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. And when I say that, remember that the chapter divisions aren't original to the text either. They are not inspired. They are there to help us learn. Because if I had to say, turn to page 587, line 13, well, what it, I'm using a Schofield reference. What if you don't have the Schofield reference? You know, it, it becomes a lot easier when we have the chapter and verse divisions in there. And in fact, actually, sometimes even the original Hebrew or Greek verses and chapters don't line up with our English ones. I had that happen one time. I was doing a project at school where I had to translate part of 1 John, and it was going all well and good until I was translating part of a verse that in English was in the next verse, but in Greek it was still in the previous verse. So that's not any kind of a translation issue or anything like that because they're not inspired numbers. That's just flow of thought in Hebrew or Greek is sometimes a little different than English. Uh, And if you ever confuse which part of the Bible is Hebrew and which one is Greek, just remember that the Old Testament was about the Hebrews, the Jewish people. So it was written in Hebrew. And then the New Testament was in the Greek time period, the Greek empire. So it was written in Greek. So Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. And this particular book, Genesis, in Hebrew is called Bereshit. Can you try saying that with me? Bereshit. Bereshit. Oh, very good. That was really good. Most Hebrew names for books of the Old Testament are actually the first few words of the book. So if, you, if I had a Hebrew Bible here with me today and I were to point out the first word of the book of Genesis, it would be the word Bereshit. And it means in the beginning, just like we have. So they name, I think that's so cool that they name their books the first few words of the book. It's such a weird way of thinking about it, but it's, it's kind of cool. So Bereshit is both the title and the first word of Genesis in Hebrew. So let, let's look at the narrative now. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, page 1 of your scripture. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There there is already so much we could talk about there. There are hours of discussion and study that could go into that one verse, but let's just hit a few highlights here tonight. 
And, and by the way, if, if you want to talk about something more, I want this to be more of like the Bible study, almost like Pastor Riddell was doing when he was going through Revelation and stuff. So if you have a question or a thought or whatever, either uh, you can ask or most of you have my phone number or get it from someone. Ask me through the week. Like, seriously, guys, this keeps me going through my week to get those Bible questions and thoughts, uh, as, as a couple of you in here already know. I, I love going through this stuff. But, but let me ask you, we just read Genesis 1.1. What goes through your mind when you think of that verse? What do you picture with Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What picture does that evoke in your mind? And that can be rhetorical or someone, if they are brave enough to offer a thought, we can hear that too. What was there before it? Okay, that's, that's a good thought. That's something we actually are kind of going to address tonight. Power, power, the supreme power of God in that, absolutely. Well, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What's that sound like to you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you are really on the right track with that because I think a lot of times, at least for me, when I read this, I tend, the first thing that comes to my mind is a globe. I picture the earth as the third planet in our solar system there and God creating this. And why? Because I live in the 21st century. I think all of you do here too, unless you're time travelers, but we've gone to space, right? We've studied the globe so many different ways, but was the Bible written in the 21st century? No, no, it wasn't. The ancient Jews explained the world The way they explained the world was as having water below, the land on top of the water, an invisible dome over top of that, that's what we call the firmament, and then water above that dome. I know to us that's not at all how we would describe the world, especially since we see NASA pictures and stuff like that. God knows all things, but he did use humans who don't know all things to write the Bible. Now, he did not allow those humans to add in error. Our Bible is without error. But he did allow them to write within their cultural contexts. So in other words, you could say that God did not give a miraculous scientific knowledge from the 21st century to someone writing 1,400 years before Jesus. They would have explained the world the way they thought of. Here's one of the best examples I can give of that. Um, Today, we consider the heart to be the seat of emotions, right? Like, if I were to say that somebody broke my heart, not a single one of you in here would think that another human being physically damaged the organ in my chest that pumps blood, right? Because you're thinking, oh, he's talking about someone made him sad, someone disappointed him. Because we understand the heart to be that metaphorical seat of emotion. It's how we describe what we can feel but not see. Well, the Bible authors did that too, but they didn't use the word heart. They used kidneys. Seriously, <laughs> that was their word for it. Whenever you read in the Old Testament, you come across the word reins, like God trieth the reins or something about the reins in the heart. That's their word for kidneys. They described the seed of emotion as being the kidney like we would the heart. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong any more than we're wrong when we say that the heart 
is the seat of the emotions. It's describing it poetically like that. And actually, when you think about it, a lot of your emotions affect the area around your kidneys. If you're nervous, you feel a fluttering in your stomach that you call butterflies in the stomach. If you're worried or scared, you feel a knot in your stomach. So putting the scientific studies of the 21st century aside, the language that the Bible authors use actually makes a lot of sense. And there are a lot of people today who are starting to incorporate that back into our scientific studies where they say, yes, the heart pumps blood, but there's also something about this part of the body that just tightens up when you feel worried or flutters when you feel happy. And so they're, they're kind of reincorporating a Bible idea now almost. It's really intuitive. And it's the same way they describe creation. When you read heaven in the Bible, I want you to get out of your mind the concept of a non-physical location where God lives and we go when we die. English has a lot of words that have singular and plural, right? Uh, we have singular words, plural words. Uh, we can have one dog, we can have dogs. Uh, it might be two dogs, it might be ten dogs, all we know is dogs, it's plural. Uh, but a lot of languages, Hebrew being one of them, can have singular, dual, and plural. They have a different person. Dual means two specifically. Um, and in Hebrew, those words end in ayim, A-Y-I-M. So the word for heaven is one of those words. So whenever you read heaven in the Old Testament, it's never just heaven. It's heavens. It's a dual word. It's referring to two. The word is hashamayim. You have it there, shamayim. It's always described as two. And we still have a little bit of that in English. This might help you to wrap your mind around that a little bit. Right now, I am wearing pants. I only have one article of clothing on my lower half here, but I would not say I'm wearing pant. Some of you here are wearing glasses. You only have one article of clothing, one article item on your face, but I'd never say you're wearing glass. You would never hand me a scissor. It sounds weird when we say it like that, because that's that same little bit of an idea. Certain words in Hebrew heavens being one of them, it's always two. Why? Because it doesn't usually, and I will say usually, it does not usually refer to a non-physical place where God lives. It refers to the skies. Like Mrs. Shields was saying, it's the skies, and then earth is the same thing. That's not talking about a globe, it's talking about the land below you. So especially in an, in an ancient world before planes, helicopters, drones existed, it would make sense to talk about the heavens above as where God is, because we can't go up there, and we can't see God, so maybe he's where we can't go. So that's kind of where that idea of heavens, heavens just meant sky above us, and then it kind of came into this idea of let's use it to refer to where God is too. The Bible doesn't speak as much about a disembodied state of where we go when we die as sometimes we think of. And in fact, if you read the, the end of Revelation, the picture is a very grounded reality of a very real, very physical creation that we'll live in. It's not just the new heavens, it's the new earth as well. There's a new Jerusalem. There's work that gets done in those new heavens and the new earth. So that word in heaven, in, in scripture, usually means skies, and earth usually means land. 
So the point of Genesis 1-1 is not to tell you, okay, God created the natural and the supernatural, the, the heaven where he lives and the earth where we live. It's to tell you he created what you see, the land below your feet and the stuff you can't walk on. <laughs> and I realize that's, that can be an uncomfortable concept for us a little bit, especially when we're used to having particular verses kind of used as proof text to prove our positions on something. But it does make sense when we let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, We have to remember the Bible does not exist as a cheat sheet for proving our beliefs. It proves its own purposes, whether those purposes line up with what we want them to or not. And along with this, notice what this verse does not do. Genesis 1-1 does not answer all of our questions. (laughs) There is not a list here at the beginning of, okay, here's all the possible questions you could have about creation, here's all their answers. When we come to Genesis 1, a lot of times, I think it's to fight. We want to fight over creation versus evolution. We want to fight about the days of creation, the length of the days, some other debate. But the Bible does not stop and specifically say, here's the answer to your questions. Now, don't worry, I'm not going liberal on you there. But I'm just saying that we have to let the Bible speak what it's saying. It's not that those questions are unimportant. They're fun to muse over, and we can talk about them, but they don't feed into what the story is getting at. Here's what I mean. If I were to talk to you guys after the service about how Jana and I got together, there are a lot of stories that I could tell you. But you know what stories I wouldn't tell you? I wouldn't tell you about the time a local preacher in that area bought pizza for my entire dorm because it was finals week. I wouldn't tell you about the time that I met a gay Catholic who helped to make a documentary about the relationship gay Catholics have with God. I wouldn't tell you about the time a friend and I were in somebody else's house debating with two Jehovah's Witnesses about the meaning of Greek words. Those all happened. They're fun stories and they're true, but they wouldn't help you to understand how Jana and I got together. And the same thing is true with the Bible. There are all kinds of questions that we have that are fun, they're legitimate, they're worth asking and worth mulling over, but we can't force the Bible into answering something that we want just because we want that question answered. The Bible has a story to tell, and I think we're actually meant to reevaluate our questions in light of the story that it's telling. So, you guys doing all right with that so far? That's a lot out of just verse one right there. We haven't even gotten to the first day of creation yet. Anyway, that in and of itself is an idea I'll pitch to you right here. I don't personally believe, and you can disagree with me on this, this is okay, it's not a, it's not a salvation issue, but I don't personally believe that chapter one, verse one, is the start of day one in the creation story. I think that verses one and two are like a title and an introduction to what is about to happen, describing what's going to happen in the next couple verses. And here's a couple reasons why. For one, we just learned that heaven is heavens. It refers to the sky above, and earth refers to the land beneath. Dry land was not created on day one, right? It was created on day three. But this is in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So if that's talking about land and that didn't happen until day three, 
Why would this be a part of day one? But if you take it as an overarching, here's what these next verses are about to tell you about, I think it makes more sense there. And here's another reason. There's a really fancy literary term. I have it in the bulletin there. It's called an inclusio. And essentially it refers to the begin- when the beginning and the end of a story mirror each other. They reflect the same thought. A lot of times it's actually a word-for-word repetition. It happens a lot in the Psalms. Like if you, if you looked at Psalm 118, you could see this. The Psalm 118 begins and ends with the exact same verse. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. That's verse 1, and then I think verse 27, if I remember right, is the last verse of that chapter. So it's when a verse stands apart from the rest at the start and the end of a passage to draw your attention to the main idea of that passage. And that's what I think happens in Genesis 1, 1, and 2, and then chapter 2, verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Or, well, chapter 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Chapter 2, 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So you see how it kind of, it's bookends on the story there, of telling you, here's what's about to come. It came, it happened, here's, here's the story. Uh, so I think that Genesis 1 and 2 are, 1, 1 and 2 are the cliff notes of what's about to happen. And then day 1 actually starts in day 3. Again, you might disagree, and that's okay. That's not the position I've held my whole life, just the more I've studied it. I've, I've come to think that is the case. Uh, it's saying the stage for what's about to happen. Now, let's look at verse 2 of chapter 1 and actually get into the creation here a little bit. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. All right, you are about to learn a little bit of Hebrew that you never knew you needed to know, but... There have been some pastors lately who have been teaching this to their congregations, and it's so fun to say, I just, I had to share it with you guys today. The words, it's two words, and it's tohu vavohu. Say that with me, tohu vavohu. There you go, tohu vavohu. It's the words translated without form and void. They rhyme in Hebrew, tohu vavohu. And they mean wild and waste. That's another pastor came up with that terminology, so it kind of has the, not rhyming, but the alliteration in English at least gives you the same idea, wild and waste. It means unordered and uninhabited. Today we'd say nothingness. That's kind of what you brought up with what happened before. Well, the earth was tohu vavohu. It was wild and waste. There was nothingness. But the ancient Jews didn't really have a good word for nothingness. So a state of non-existence to them meant having no purpose. It meant having no order. If something didn't exist, there was no purpose to it. It couldn't accomplish anything good. Darkness being upon the face of the deep is essentially a more poetic way to re-describe it. The word deep is a very dark, very discouraging word. It emphasizes the scary parts of the sea, if you will. Whereas waters at the end of the verse is a much calmer much more useful word. That's what the Spirit of God does when he's present. He calms the chaos of the sea. Now, can you guys think of any other story in the Bible where that happens? Where through the Spirit of God, the chaos of the sea is calmed. The disciples in a boat, in a storm. Jesus comes walking, says, peace, 
be still. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Matthew 8, 23 and 27 is meant to connect Jesus to the creator God of Genesis 1 in your mind. It's a really intentional, I like the word hyperlink. It's those little things, you, the blue colored underlined things you click on on a website that take you to another website. It's like a hyperlink in your mind to tell you this guy isn't just a guy. You need to be thinking back about Genesis 1 to determine who Jesus is. So it's linking these stories in your mind of Jesus and creation. It's really awesome. As so much that the disciples have to even ask, they ask the question for you, what kind of man can do this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Well, not a manner of man. Genesis 1, the creator. So look back in Genesis 1-2. In Bible times, water was a symbol of chaos. Water was a symbol of chaos. It's not something that can be controlled. You can't bend it to your will. It has a mind of its own. How many of you guys have ever been on a boat before? Most of you. How many of you have ever been on a boat in the ocean? Okay, yeah, still a lot of you. That ever make you feel kind of small and insignificant when you're out there in the water? Make you feel kind of powerless? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are a lot of things that human beings can tame and control. The ocean really ain't one of them. I mean, we can kind of harness its power sometimes. But if you dropped a human being in the middle of the ocean, in the contest of ocean versus man, ocean going to win every time. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's dangerous. It can be deadly. If you go to swim in the ocean, you have to have a healthy respect of it, right? That doesn't mean we can't go have fun on the beach, but it means that you have to respect it. You have to realize that compared to the strength of the ocean, I don't have much strength. I mean, I'm just a person. That thing has taken down ships made of iron and wood carrying hundreds of people. So cultures all around ancient Israel had their own versions of creation myths. The Genesis account is not the only creation story to exist. Now, we believe it's the true one, but each culture had their own creation myth, their own way of explaining how life started. And they are fascinatingly similar to the biblical account, and sometimes even more fascinatingly different. For example, water was also the starting point of the Egyptian creation myth. But in their story, their god Atum was birthed from the waters, and then he created other gods. The water was life-giving in their story because of the central place, the Nile, held in Egyptian life. The Babylonian creation story also began with water, but it's a much more violent story of this deep water god and an above water god, kind of sound like the waters above the firmament and below the firmament, deep water god and above water god create other gods. Marduk tried to build a kingdom on land while the sea god tried to stop him, so Marduk, you can read it, it's, you can find it online, Marduk rips the sea god in half to create a firmament of waters above and then waters below. <laughs> What's consistent across so many of those stories is chaos. There's a struggle, a fight. Maybe two gods are fighting and something is created or they're fighting over what to create. But what's so unique about the biblical account is there's no fight. Yahweh doesn't have to fight any other god to get what he wants. He just speaks and it comes into existence. 
In fact, he's not even, there's only one God in this story, and he's not even given a name at first. It's just the Hebrew word Elohim for gods. Later, he's called Yahweh or sometimes Adonai, but right now, he's just God. That's all you need to know. Our God is so powerful, he just speaks chaos into order. That's incredible, and it sets up the story for the rest of human history. You're able to see that this God doesn't need to fight with anyone else to get what he wants. What he makes is good, and it is useful. He never makes anything that lends toward chaos. Everything in his creation has a purpose, and it has an order. So when human beings come into the picture and they choose the way of chaos in chapter 3 over the way of order by following the serpent, God promises a redeemer who will crush the head of that chaos monster once and for all and bring a lasting peace and order in the restored Eden. And here's what blows my mind. Turn with me all the way to the very end of the story, Revelation 21. Revelation 21 in verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven, or new heavens, and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. See, I never understood the significance of that little tidbit until another preacher taught me about ancient cultures viewing the sea as a symbol of chaos. Now Revelation 21.1 is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture in my mind. There's coming a day when there'll be no more sea, no more chaos. There'll be no more pain. No more sickness, no more murder, no more rape, no more abuse, no more miscarriages, no more fires in California. All the chaos of the world that we can't control symbolized in that sea, it's not going to be there in the new creation. Just the order that comes about from our God. The main thrust of Genesis 1 is that wherever Yahweh is, he brings order into the natural state of chaos. You can see how he does that in day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Chaos, pain, death, disease, sin, none of it has any power when he speaks. So then the question for us is, which purpose have you furthered this week? In your sphere of influence amongst your friends and your family and your kids, your neighbors, your church, have you sought to bring peace and order, grace, beauty to the craziness of the world around you? Or did you allow chaos to work through you by lashing out at the people around you? by being impatient with your kids or the person in line in front of you at the grocery store or gossiping about someone you knew or posting something inflammatory on Facebook or whatever it is, what you did, did it bring more order into the world or did it bring a little more chaos in? Because the way of our God is to bring order out of chaos. So then here's an even better question. Which purpose will you choose to further for the rest of this week? Every decision you make, big, small, it's going to bring either a little chaos or a little order into this world. By sharing the love of Jesus and the actions that we put forth, we can further the Creator's purpose of bringing order into a fallen world. And that's Genesis 1 for you. We have just a second here. Do we have any questions to cover? I know I shoved a lot into your minds there in a half hour, but... Any quick thoughts before we close in prayer? 
All right, I'm available either afterward or through the rest of the week. If you guys want to talk about it anymore, I'd love to. Let's pray. Father, your power is incredible. Uh, just seeing it on display in this passage, in this, in this first chapter of our scriptures, is beyond comparison to anyone or anything else. And there is so much beauty that you created in the order around us. I pray that in the days to come, uh, the decisions that we make, the choices, the actions, the words, would further the order that you started in Genesis 1 and not bring uh, more chaos through our sin, but that we would choose your way over the way of our flesh. Pray that would be true of each of us here tonight, and we thank you for it. In your son's name, amen. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcasts or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.